Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, If You Have Faith. It's based upon the lectionary readings for October 6th, 2019. This week's gospel reading begins with the request, I know well. Increase our faith. If you're like me, you've made this request many times, and you've used language just as insistent and desperate as the disciples' language in Luke's Gospel. To be fair, in the verses preceding our lectionary reading, Jesus delivers some heavy-duty teaching to his would-be followers. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, he says, but woe to anyone through whom they come. And, even if your brother or sister sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Hardly easy stuff. No wonder the disciples cry more. Given the context, I'm inclined to applaud them. After all, their request is so earnest, so well-intentioned. They're not asking for wealth, comfort, prestige, or safety. They're asking for faith. It's not a good thing. Apparently not, because Jesus responds to the request with bewildering impatience. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, he tells them, you would say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant it in the sea, and it would obey you. Worse, he then launches into a slave and master analogy that grates on my 21st century ears. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Here's the thing. I'm not sure I like Jesus in this passage. He sounds so irritated. He seems to promise the impossible. A mulberry tree that bears fruit in the sea, while simultaneously expecting his disciples to regard themselves as worthless slaves. What is happening in this passage? We might sidestep the interpretive difficulty in part by acknowledging that this section of scripture is disjointed. Not a coherent Jesus story with a pleasing and easy-to-follow arc, but a cobbled-together collection of sayings that probably did not originate together. I can also minimize my discomfort by recognizing that the passage is hyperbolic. Jesus isn't talking about literal mustard seeds, oceans, mulberry trees, or slaves. He's exaggerating on purpose to make a point. But the passage still grates at me, maybe because I care so much about the request at his heart. Increase our faith, the disciples ask. Increase my faith, I ask, in some guise or another, nearly every day. What does Jesus say in response? No. He says, no. Why? Maybe the only way to answer the question is to unpack what I mean by faith. What exactly am I asking for when I beg God to give me more faith? Sometimes I'm asking for the faith that moves mountains, a supernatural ability to manipulate God into doing what I want. Sometimes I'm asking for an intellectual booster shot, an increased mental capacity to inform the more challenging tenets of traditional Christianity, the virgin birth, or the resurrection, or the second coming. And sometimes I'm asking for an antidote to anxiety. God, please take away the fear I feel as I face your invisibility and your silence. 
Grant me certainty so I'll feel happier, holier, stronger, braver. Rewire my brain and my heart so that it becomes impossible to doubt you. When I take a hard look at my assumptions about faith, Jesus' no begins to make some sense. What if faith isn't quantifiable? What if more faith isn't better faith? What if faith isn't even a noun? What if instead faith is engagement, orientation, action? What if faith is something we do, not something we have? Whenever I read the Gospels, I'm struck by how often and how lavishly Jesus commends the faith of those who seek him out. Your faith has saved you, he tells a woman who anoints his feet, a Samaritan leper who returns to thank him, and a hemorrhaging woman who grasps his cloak. Your faith has made you well, he tells a blind beggar. Such faith I have not seen in all of Israel, he exclaims about a Roman centurion. What is it that Jesus admires so in these people? As far as I can tell, the only thing they do is turn to him, orient themselves in his direction, trust him. What earns his admiration is their, is their willingness, even in difficult, painful, and potentially risky circumstances, to lean into his goodness, healing, justice, and mercy. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says to his disciples, as if to say, you do. Don't you understand? You have this faith already. This is not about proportion. I can't give you a recipe. We're not balancing chemical equations with a neutron here and two protons there. You have faith because you have me. You've seen me and known me. What else do you lack? I believe the invitation in this lection is for us to go forth and live in light of what we already see, sense, hear, and know. In other words, the invitation is to do faith, to do the loving, forgiving thing we consider so banal we ignore it. Why? Because a life of faith is as straightforward as a slave serving his master dinner, as ordinary as a hired worker fulfilling the terms of his contract. Faith is not fireworks. It is not meant to dazzle. Faith is simply recognizing our tiny place in relation to God's enormous, creative love and then filling that place with our whole lives. In this sense, and I know how unpopular this sounds, faith is simply showing up when we're expected to show up. Faith is duty, motivated and sustained by love. One of the most damaging messages the Church communicates to people struggling in their spiritual lives is that faith is somehow antithetical to doubt, fear, ambivalence, or confusion, that when it comes to faith, our problem is scarcity. This is a cruel and deeply damaging lie. Having faith, even having enough faith, does not mean that we will never struggle with unbelief, distrust, or anxiety. Having faith means leaning hard into God's abundance. Having faith means pursuing God and the things of God, even when the pursuit feels painful. pointless. Faith is not deciding once and for all to follow Jesus. Faith is living within God's extravagant decision to love and pursue us. Faith is trusting Jesus one step at a time, day after day after day, for the long haul. Barbara Brown Taylor writes that we waste a great deal of time and energy looking for the key to the treasure box of more. All we lack, she argues, is the willingness to imagine that we already have everything we need. The only thing missing 
is our consent to be where we are. G.K. Chesterton, in turn, suggests that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. If I'm honest, I must admit that when I ask God to increase my faith, what I'm really asking for is a spiritual life that's easy, smooth, and uncomplicated. Jesus' response to his disciples, however, suggests that faith requires rigor. It grows stronger when it's exercised and weakens when it's idle. In other words, Jesus doesn't sidestep the disciples' request for faith out of callousness. He sidesteps it out of wisdom and deep love. Why? Because he knows the things that make for human flourishing. He recognizes the muscular living our hearts require in order to thrive. Do faith, and faith will increase. Do faith, and the astonishing fruits of faith will reward you. For books this week, Dan reviews Michael Coogan's God's Favorites, Judaism, Christianity, and the Myth of Divine Chosenness. One of the most troubling themes in Christianity and Judaism is the scandal of particularity. In the Old Testament, God, Israel alone is God's elect people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel is not only God's special insider community, it is the only insider community. And not long after the time of Jesus, the early Christians viewed themselves as the new Israel that replaced the perfidious Jews and who alone were the newly and truly chosen people of God. As Michael Kubin and many others have observed, Jews and Christians are hardly alone in making this sort of claim. Numerous kings and gods have not only claimed to be divinely chosen, they have claimed to be divine. The practical consequences of this view of election have been catastrophic in many times and places. The subjugation and extermination of the other, who is non-elect, and the confiscation of their land that's claimed to be given to the elect by God. After an introductory chapter, Coogan documents this view among ancient Jews, early Christians, other faiths, the Puritan settlers of America, and then in Jewish and American ultra-religious Zionists. In his last two chapters, he considers the role of immigrants and refugees in the Bible and makes an appeal to end our tribalisms. Coogan's answer to the scandal of particularity is simple. He dismisses it as a myth, that is, as something that is not true. Rather, all claims to be divinely chosen and even divine are, quote, a self-designation for political and personal aggrandizement. Today, we dismiss the claims of divine election that were made by the ancient Hammurabi, Egyptian pharaohs, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, Napoleon, and many others, and we should do the same with Jewish and Christian claims. Kugan's book is unapologetically dismissive. The ancient Yahweh is a, quote, bloodthirsty God with an inferiority complex. He acknowledges that the Jewish and Christian scriptures contain major themes of inclusion and universality, but he never considers these at any length. To take just one example, when God chose Abraham to form one particular nation, his election of Israel did not mean his exclusion of Gentiles. In fact, quite the opposite. God said that he would bless not only Abraham's progeny, but all peoples on earth. When God repeated his covenant with Isaac, he reiterated his intentions for all the world. In you, Isaac, all nations on earth will be blessed. And when Isaac's son Jacob used a rock for a pillow and dreamed a dream at Bethel, God repeated verbatim, In you, Jacob, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Kugan reminded me of the saying that when all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. 
In his introductory chapter, Coogan confers upon himself the mantle of scholarly objectivity, denies it to others, and admits that he has a polemical purpose. He explains that the post-Enlightenment historical critical method rightly displaced the Bible from its privileged status in favor of a more objective approach. Further, other scholars, quote, have not set aside their presuppositions. They let their faith taint their scholarship, and so they attain only professed objectivity, even though he admits that it's a debatable notion that one can be objective, and the complete objectivity is impossible. But this is precisely what he claims for his own work. As he puts it, I'm fairly confident that I've brushed away the cobwebs of dogmatism and set aside my own presuppositions. Finally, he says that he attained the scholarly objectivity when he shed his Catholic faith and stopped believing in the biblical God or in any God. I left my swaddling clothes behind. For more on this important subject, I commend the works of Frank Anthony Spina, The Faith of the Outsider, Exclusion and Inclusion in the Biblical Story, Miroslav Wolf, Exclusion and Embrace, A Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness and Reconciliation, Amartya Sen, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny, and The Conquest of America, The Question of the Other. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Far Green Country. If life is a journey, then there are bumps in the road. Eli and Kelly Pike were 10 years into marriage when they woke up to a long list of stressors. A miscarriage, a traumatic birth, EMDR psychotherapy, health issues with their newborn son Dakota, and a marriage in survival mode. So Kelly, the free spirit extrovert who says she needed to escape my reality, and Eli, the stay-at-home introvert, did what came natural. As globetrotting adrenaline junkies, they bought a 20-year-old 32-inch motorhome and left their home in Central Oregon without a clear plan or destiny. This 70-minute documentary that they wrote, directed, and produced records the ups and downs of their vagabond road trip. They motored from the Canadian Rockies to the Death Valley Desert. The trip was equal parts adventure, drudgery, and marriage therapy. They saw grizzly bears, swam in frigid glacial lakes, sat around campfires, and savored the digital detox of life without the internet. They drew inspiration from other couples they met, like some Australians who had been 11 years on the road. Quote, with a passport and a credit card, you can go anywhere. This film includes some important reminders. Invest in experiences rather than in material things. And there is always hope for healing. I watched this film on Amazon Prime. And lastly, for poetry this week, God Moves in Mysterious Ways by William Cowper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, 
and he will make it clean. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for October 6th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.